You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. My name is Dinah Jansen. I'm your host, and I am here with Professor Richard Askoff from the School of Religion and also Associate Dean Teaching and Learning in the Faculty of Arts and Science. That's correct. Thank you for having me, Dinah. Welcome to our show. Richard is here with us today to talk about uh, teaching and learning, his role uh, as the Associate Dean in Teaching and Learning, the kinds of teaching he does in the School of Religion. We'll also hear a little bit about his research. And we'll also hear about a number of wonderful and rather prestigious awards, uh, not only from Queen's University, but at the national level, including the 3M National Teaching Fellowship, which uh, you just recently won. I did, yes. And congratulations. Thank you very much. It was just announced in McLean's Magazine. It's all been very exciting. It really has. And and we saw it in the Gazette, too. So you're getting lots and lots of coverage, and we're so happy that you've given us the time today. Oh, my Thank pleasure. you. Okay, so uh, Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, perhaps a little bit about your research in the School of Religion. Certainly, yes. So I've been at, with, at Queen's for 18 years now, and at the School of Religion the whole time, uh, where I teach in early Christianity and Greek and Roman religions. But I found uh, over the years, I've started branching out. So I also teach a course on religion and film mm-hmm. and a course on religion and business ethics. So I have this sort of rather eclectic mixed bag of ancient and more modern okay. uh, teaching topics. So the teaching that you're doing in film as well as business ethics, does this overlap with some of the research that you're doing? Not so much. I mean, I've dabbled in there and published a little bit in those areas. My research area is really on uh, the first two centuries as uh, what comes to be called Christianity starts developing from what I would call early Christ groups. Okay. Very small, disparate groups, only a few in each of the major urban centers, if that. Um, eventually, over centuries, over a few centuries, becomes what we now know of as a world religion. But I'm really interested in how does that happen within the broader social social context of the Greek, the Roman world. Interesting. Now, with your teaching, with the classes that you are teaching in the School of uh, Religion, are, but I understand you're also cross-appointed in classics? I am, um, I'm, but mostly in the School of Religion, but cross-appointed classics. So uh, one of the uh, foci of this most recent award, they ask uh, to you, me to reflect on my teaching, was on a course I developed a few years ago called Greek and Roman Religions. Okay. So that's one that does double duty. It's both religious studies but also classics, and I get a nice mix of, of students from both those uh, disciplines and then some. Uh, so I get to play a lot with what uh, is more commonly known as mystery religions. Ooh. So Dionysus, Isis, the Great Mother, uh, and we did it all in the interactive classroom, which was great fun. Um, how, what does the research process actually look like? What kinds of artifacts are you working with? Yeah, it's a well, we have our own archives, but ours are often great big slabs of marble or, <laughs> or granite. So they tend not to be easily portable. Right. Um, and so uh, a lot of what happened, especially in the rise of archaeology, is they would find this you know, fantastic statue of, say, uh, Artemis. 
and then an inscription. Of course, the statue would be transported to a museum somewhere, mm -hmm. um, often, unfortunately, out of the country where it was found. The inscriptions, however, were heavy, and they're not aesthetically that pleasing. So they might get recorded, mm -hmm. even quickly, maybe a drawing, and then sort of turned over, or sometimes face down right on the... Um, in a grass field, sometimes all piled in a, a some kind of depot somewhere. And so where we started was not actually going to, you know, what other historians might go to an archive of letters. That's the archaeological fields all over the place. Um, we went to those written transcripts, and we started noticing um, mistakes in them, or what, what didn't seem to be right. So, you know, is this the right, did they write it down correctly, and it was it a, an error, a spelling error, on the original inscription or not. So subsequently, we've had to go and actually look at the inscriptions when we can so find you them. Can find a, you uh, have the ability to find an error in ancient Greek written in shorthand or well, something like <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not that good. <laughs> uh, no, what it is, it's more, no, I'm not, that, that overplays it. It's more, uh, sometimes it was actually, <laughs> starting out really early, what we, we couldn't figure out what some words were. Then we realized it was a dialect of Greek that none of us had actually been trained in. So some of it was just more that. I mean, we've learned as we've gone. Yeah. Some of it, though, is trying to figure out um, there are actual errors that the original scribe made in the inscription versus an error that somebody made in copying it out. So, you know, with... 1800 years between one and the other who did it mm -hmm. so we do have to go back and check the original when we can sometimes these things are, have disappeared mm -hmm. there are literally thousands of them what we've done uh, now we have, have what I call a digital humanities project uh, one of my the three of us working on on it and my colleague at York University um, hosts it and we we put um, a, the best quality rendition of the inscription hopefully after we've seen it, but many of them we can't, they're lost forever, or they're in the basement of some museum and no, no one knows, they could be tracked down, but very difficult. We put that online along with an English translation and a little bit of a description. And we've done this in book form mm -hmm. and source book form, but that's very limited and very expensive. So now we have this, um, we're developing this archive online, and so we're almost at 2,000 of these inscriptions with, with many more thousands to go. That's amazing. Uh, a yeah, lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's fun work. Some of them are very short. Some of them are a lot longer, and so it takes a long time to compare different versions, especially if we can't check the original. We have to look at um, uh, what does Scholar X says, and he saw it, but Scholar Y corrected him, then Scholar Z corrected her. So what do we do now with yeah. these and try to figure out what the original was? I just have to say it's difficult for people who, who are listening and not seeing, but you're really animated about <laughs> I love this stuff. You really do, yeah, and yeah, it's really yeah, nice yeah. to see it. It's always good. really refreshing to hear about yeah, other people's yeah, fine yeah. work. So again, thank you for sharing yeah, with us. Fun. I really appreciate it. Now, uh, so you've told us a little bit about uh, the research process uh, that, that you have been undertaking and continue to undertake. Now, let's talk about the teaching process. And you mentioned uh, uh, earlier at the top of the program that some of your uh, research, in fact, does have intersections in your teaching. What happens in your classroom? From what I'm told, this, the, the animation you just said that, <laughs> that you noticed about me, uh, I get excited in class about it. Uh, uh, so I think that's part of it, is just um, 
no matter what the topic is, whether it's my research area or these ancillary areas like business ethics or um, film, I just I get excited about learning. I, I just love learning myself, and, and I want my students to get excited about learning stuff. Yeah. Um, and in a class that might be focused on the topic, and, and I can be their guide there. I think one of the, the big things I've learned over the year is over the years is I'm not a data dump. <laughs> that that I'm not there just to dump down everything I've learned, although. I'd love to, um, but I want them to get excited about it. So, mm-hmm. um, although I, I love lecturing, I think there's a there is a place for lecturing. I tend to do now more and more mini lectures, and then try and get interactive activities, whether it's in a lecture hall with people working in pairs or in a mm-hmm. plenary, or in the interactive learning classrooms working in tables. Um, I try to get, design the learning in that you know one or three hour block, whatever we're mm-hmm. we're, we're teaching in. Um, to get the students engaged in the material. And the assumption they signed up for my courses, my courses are elective, so there's something about it, they're there. They want to be there for a reason. Right. So I want to work with whatever that reason is. It'll be different among different students, but what is it that excites them to give them a sort of a, a, a defined and yet broad enough activity in the classroom that they can dig in and run with it. Okay, can you give us a, a, an example of a specific activity you might offer in a lecture class of say 100 students on a particular topic? So I have a course on New Testament introduction. It's, it's really it's the early, um, the first century of what comes to be called Christianity um, through the 27 books that made it into the New Testament. Of course there's many others that mm-hmm. didn't and we talk about that. And, and so um, in that class, um, one of the things actually I did just this last year, and this, this worked out better than I'd even planned, um, I called it Discipleship Survivor. And 12 weeks of the semester and 12 weeks of, um, uh, and there's 12 disciples in the, in the Christian tradition. So I have a toy boat, it's about a foot long, and it's got a figure of Jesus who's you know, a couple inches high and 12 disciples that are, are, are named there. And I brought it in and I said, you know, just for fun, uh, I, I said, I, I, had, I read to them from the Gospel of Matthew where Peter um, declares who he thinks Jesus is, says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, great, you, you got it right. Here's the keys to the kingdom. And it, the tradition has it that he becomes the first pope. Yes. And I said, well, you know, Peter denied Jesus three times. It's a bit of a putz. Does he really deserve the keys to the kingdom? Let's see. Let's try mm-hmm. and, and let's see if we can, um, you know, have a vote who should get them. So every week I asked them to come with a name of who they wanted to vote out of the boat. But, uh, you know, it's the last man standing, really. And, um, yeah, I thought this would just be a little fun icebreaker. And what happened, of course, they come. They came the second week. I said, well, you know, of the 12, who's your first nominee to be voted out? And hands went up and said, well, there's more than 12. Great. They've done their homework because across the four Gospels, there are, there are more than 12 named disciples. Right. So all of a sudden, we were into the hermeneutics and the history there. And then each week, they would come having done a little bit of research, not just in the biblical text, but in the extra biblical text. You know, like, well, let's get rid of Andrew. Here's what he did, but he's not as, you know, as good as the other ones that are left. Then someone might jump to Andrew's defense. And okay. It was funny to see how many jumped to Peter's defense as it got down to the wire. <laughs> I'm now thinking in reverse. So in Instead of cardinals voting popes in, it sounds like Survivor, where people are getting voted off the island. Hence, hence have... my name, Discipleship Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
wow, do you have fun activities where people have to leap over barricades and <laughs> climb well, ropes? But we get into that. Courses. So that's part of the great deal. So they come. Once it got rolling, students would come and say, well, this the tradition has it that you know St. Andrew did such and such. Right. And so it what I thought would be a five minute icebreaker at the beginning of each class turned longer, longer each week as we talked about um, the relative strength of sources. Does is a canonical text more important than a non-canonical text? How do we read text? Who's the arbitrator of interpretation? What's the role of oral tradition? How do we evaluate miracles? Did they or didn't they happen? All of a sudden we're into a lot of, of deeper things that are a part of the study of early Christianity, which sure I could have lectured on. Yeah. But we didn't, I didn't have to. Students were asking the questions about this from this innocuous little exercise that, frankly, I just thought would be a fun way to start each class. But that's so much more interesting. And I feel like there's a really a great learning experience there for students instead of just as if we were walking into your class and then you read off from the lectern like this and Jesus said, here are the king keys to the kingdom, right, blah, blah, right. drone, drone, drone. Yeah, no, we don't want to do it. And, you know, we recognize that, that that just doesn't work as a, a learning style okay, so anymore. Okay, so with this in mind then, with, the, with some of the description of the teaching here, what are the learning outcomes then that come from your classes? So in that particular class, one of the learning outcomes is to be able to apply different reading strategies. So one of the important things for me in a class like that, and again, it's set up as a three-hour lecture, um, is to constantly be in dialogue with my students about what it is I'm doing. So I'll, I'll stop and say, you know, we just had this big conversation about who to vote um, out, of, out of the vote. Here's why we did that. Here's the issues that came up. Here's the transferable critical thinking skills that you learned in assessing evidence. You assessed evidence. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a trial lawyer or a doctor looking at you know a patient and what the symptoms are, or you're a textual reader like me, mm -hmm. you, 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 it's the same, it's a similar skill. It's a transferable skill. And I want them to know that's what we're doing. I don't want it to just be by osmosis. I, mm -hmm. I want, so I call it the parallel process. It's not just me. Others call it the parallel process. What's going on in the learning? So I do that. I make sure I have spots throughout each class period where I actually stop and say, here's why I did that. I think that's a fantastic approach, um, and I've done this to a degree myself. Like I'm, we're doing this exercise in class, or the reason why you're doing this particular assignment is, and then be right. able to flesh out a little bit further specifically those transferable skills yeah. that people might be able to develop and take further into academia or into whatever career path they may may or may choose uh, but yeah like the practical what is this for along with you know, this is why it helps you retain or know better or, right. as opposed to just simply uh, me memorizing something which is a, a a tactic that all students still feel like they need to do I must absorb yeah, but, all of this yeah. stuff so I can produce something for an exam, but does that necessarily translate into real understanding? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a, that's always a challenge too, because of course there's a basic vocabulary you might need in, for example, in, in just about every discipline, right? right? You need to know what certain words mean and how they're applied in that discipline. And so in a sense, you can't just say, oh, well, they don't need to know any of this. So mm -hmm. one way is the sort of memorization and pop quizzes, and, and there, there's a role for that. I, I think it's 
it's getting at it in different ways. So you might do it that way, but that's not going to be the only way, or that's not going to work for all the students. So mm -hmm. how else do we do it? We'd have these little activities that we do where those same words come up, or and again, be explicit about naming them. So it's reinforcing all the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, I can pull dates out of my head, and students say, oh, you that's great, you must have memorized it. It's like, yes, but it's more I can see where it flows, like why it's important and fits. So it's knowing how to map data. Mm -hmm. You can Google anything. Now, you don't need me to say when did uh, Constantine, you know, the, the Battle of Millivium Bridge take place. You can Google that and find out the date. Mm -hmm. But to know why it matters, to know what it is you want to, to actually look up, to know how to assess the evidence, to know when you get multiple hits and they're different, mm -hmm. to know which one, how to, how to access uh, the criteria. Um, that that that's a big skill. I, I, I can another example I use in that course, if you like, is, yeah. is that in one of the assignments I give is um, in the study of the historical Jesus. The question is, so, a, did the person exist, <laughs> like just a guy named Jesus? And I, I think most historians working in my field now say there was a guy. Um, that's as far as you know, this. Uh, but what did he say, and what did we do? What did he do? We have all this evidence. So how, what are the criteria that we use? for assessing this. I ask them, without going too much into details with the students, I say as one of their written assignments they have to hand in, um, they have to find 10 websites just about the historical Jesus. Well, you Google historical Jesus, you get about a gajillion. Yes. So they have to find 10, seven that are good, three that are bad, and, and tell me why. Okay, yeah, this is I was the key. gonna say, what, what and makes the a good why. website? Yep. And, and I, bring, I bring the librarian in to talk about how you evaluate it. And so they come in and often, you know, They'll bring it to class, and I, I grade it afterwards. But they'll one person will say, for example, this is a really good website. Um, the Pope endorses it, and somebody else will say, well, this is a really bad website. The Pope endorses it. So then it's the same criterion, mm -hmm. but how do we evaluate that? Well, all of a sudden we're talking about, and and some of them are just like, well, we know how to evaluate websites. But what I'm really after is, in fact, by the end, I've listed all the different criteria they're using to evaluate websites, and it maps on to the criteria that scholars use in what we call the search of the historical Jesus. Okay. You know, multiple attestations, so different kinds of, of, of evidence for it, um, the, the kind of authority, usage, so, you know, what pops up first in Google, mm -hmm. all the kind of things that actually scholars were using, at least in one aspect, historically, of the search of the historical Jesus, those mm -hmm. criteria. The mm -hmm. students have already done. So when we get to talking about it, I say, you don't need to learn this. You just did it. Yes. <laughs> it's, all I'm doing is giving a name to what you just did with websites. Um, you can ah. see that. So they get to learn how to evaluate websites, which I think is an important skill. But they also get to learn how scholars evaluate the words and deeds of Jesus. They look at, you know, Jesus um, turned water into wine. And mm -hmm. then they have to actually say, well... I can't just say, no, he didn't, or yes, he did. I have to have reasoning. And so they're looking at specifically at scholarly websites in this sense. They're not just... I don't limit it. Oh, so they could be pulling up random stuff Crazy from Reddit? Stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I say they can't have ones that just digest other sites. It's got to be. But it could be, you know, Crazy Uncle Bob, who thinks Jesus is the greatest thing since since sliced bread, or not. Or it Wait, could be... A, who came first? <laughs> who came first? <laughs> Or it could be a very scholarly website, but that part mm -hmm. becomes part of the criteria. So then we ask, we have these four Gospels, is one of them the crazy Uncle Bob? <laughs> or are they all equally trustworthy? Hmm. That, or can we trust Matthew more than we can trust Luke or John? That's a question that has to be asked. Interesting. 
and I bet your students get into some fun, interesting conversation and perhaps uh, debate. <laughs> <laughs> we get the very, very interesting conversation. And almost always it, it, it is scholarly and engaging. And, you know, over the years you learn. I, there's been times when I've had students get angry, um, mostly directed at me, not at each other, which is good. I've been called the Antichrist. My friends and family that know me well say, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it can, for students that come to this material from a particular, say, faith perspective, it, it can be threatening. And I, I want to be aware of that in class as well. You're dealing mm-hmm. with, with um, texts that aren't new. They're his, I treat them as historical texts, but they're also not neutral for some people. Right. Commitments. Yeah. So that's also a careful balance uh, that you have to figure into each of in your courses. In some courses, yeah. yeah. You do, you know, I've, in Greek and Roman religions, I haven't had that many Mithraists. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or you know, ISIS worshippers in my uh, in my course. So. Um, okay, so thank you very much again for uh, all of these stories that you've told us about from coming straight out of your classroom. Uh, now you have some other uh, big things going on besides your teaching and your research. You're also the associate dean and faculty of arts and science for teaching and learning. Uh, you've received numerous accolades because of your innovative and creative teaching. Uh, can you tell us about some, uh, I know some people don't really want to talk about themselves and why they're so awesome, but can you tell us about some of the uh, awards and prizes that you've received and well-deserved at that? Thank you, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's that self, uh, you know, if you protest too much, it seems contrived, but uh, uh, no, it's very exciting. I must admit, um, Early on, I was uh, when I was at Queens. Um, my students nominated me from the, for the alumni teaching award, and when I saw some of the things that the students were saying about my teaching, I thought this is what makes it worthwhile. Students were saying things about how um, the learning was sticking, um, how it was resonating with them. Um, there's an exercise I use. I do workshops on teaching and learning um, here, but also in, in other places. And a little exercise we use: if if you bump into a student. Uh, in the mall five years after they graduate, what, and they recognize you, what would you want them to say about you? And they, my greatest fear is they'll, they'll come up to you and say, oh, Professor Askoff, I remember you. You were so funny. It's like, really? That's all you remember from my course? <laughs> you know, I, and you know, putting more formal terms, what is the learning outcome that I want to stick in their mind that they come I learned X from you. Mm-hmm. And so the teaching awards as I've seen students have, have, have nominated me, they're naming some of those learnings, things that have stuck with them, that um, in, in this, um, these most recent ones, a student said um, how she's a voracious note taker. And in my class, she didn't take any notes because it was so interactive. She was mm-hmm. too busy, but remembered things like the seven grades of initiation in the cult of Mithras, even though she hadn't written it down because we did activities where they actually designed their own rituals okay. for these. And it stuck with her. I th- that's what I want. It's it's to hear that kind of, of feedback, and and so it's it's very nice to get the awards, but it's it's because the the students are learning, and that mm-hmm. that's the important part. And students, uh, and I think that you can appreciate this too. Students are also extremely important for our own learning as as teachers right the feedback like of course if there's a difference between somebody like saying I thought you were the funniest professor ever uh, versus uh, I really this really stuck with me over the years and in fact I still think about this and what I'm doing now but also even on the ground like for example when we're getting our feedback at the end of the term or something 
getting that feedback is ever so critical in terms of one's own teaching development because sometimes people can just get stuck in there. I think this works. Well, yeah. But it might not work for everybody, right? Well, that's what's so interesting. Yeah, so the USATs and then other forms of, of that kind of feedback. You know, we talk about the flipped classroom. And I would say, so you asked me some examples from my lecture, but I, actually my last few courses, uh, my um, business ethics course and my Greco-Roman religious course have been in Ellis Hall in, mm -hmm. in 333, which is uh, sort of the medium-sized interactive learning classroom there. And I just love it. Um, it flips it. it. We can spend all our time. I don't lecture at all. I just, or, you know, very little. I just, um, uh, we design activities that get students learning. And I learn so much from my students as well. And it sticks too. So that in a sense, it's not just that student in the mall coming to me and saying, oh, I remember this. I want to be able to see them and say, oh, Sally, I remember you mm -hmm. saying this. Mm -hmm. I remember that, that it's, there are students that stick out in my mind by name, by face, because of what they taught me. That mm -hmm. I'm learning from them because they're, they engage this material and ask questions I didn't think of asking. Right. It's fascinating. I just love it. I love it when students present their particular challenges too, yeah, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so you've told you've talked about this uh, alumni award that you received, and the but you've received other accolades as well. Yeah, it's uh, an embarrassment of riches, I guess. That um, the Bailey Award is another big one at Queens. Um, I think Queens does a really good job of of supporting our students. We have a lot of we have these these awards, the Knox Awards, um, the newer ones. I haven't won any of them, and you know the the Principals Awards. I think are really great um, as well in terms of encouraging and recognizing. I mean. I don't, and I don't think any of the other winners teach to get awards. Right. But the awards are a nice way of reaffirming the things we're doing because of the student and the input from students and and colleagues uh, that that recognize the kinds of things. Sometimes it's the edgier kinds mm -hmm. of things. Taking a chance, um, students are recognizing that that's working for them. And I remember when I first got here to Queens. Um, the, the alumni award winner for that year was a speaker at the faculty orientation. And it, it wasn't, I heard her and it wasn't, oh, I want to win that award. It was, I want to be like that. I want to be able to talk about teaching like that. And mm -hmm. I early on jumped into the Center for Teaching and Learning, got involved in reading groups there, in going to workshops there, got involved with an external organization I'm still involved with now called the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion, um, and as a participant there. And I, I learned a language to talk about and reflect on my teaching, which then helped me process it more mm -hmm. uh, with, with colleagues and with students. So I think that's a big part of what the awards do then is allow you the opportunity to hear how s students are engaging with the kinds of things that like, I think I'm doing in the classroom. Okay. Now, in following with that then, uh, tell us about the 3M National Teaching Fellowship, which you were just named uh, as a fellow recently. Yes, yeah, this is so, very, very exciting. So tell us what this fellowship is. So uh, 3M, uh, it's, it's sponsored, obviously 3M, McLean's, and a few other um, uh, sponsors of an award that, that select uh, 10, uh, what they call fellows, uh, across Canada every year. And uh, quite a lengthy nomination package and a lot of, um, they want a lot of, of uh, evidence from student, about student learning and from students themselves, but mm -hmm. also from, from colleagues. But they select um, 10 of, of the teaching fellows through the Society uh, for Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. And 
uh, as I understand it, since I'm just new to this, but they, they form this cohort of 10. And the, the, um, the big reward is we get to go to a retreat center in November uh, for three days to talk about teaching. So you get some really good, accomplished, bright teachers and you put them in a room together. Uh, I just want to be a fly on the wall uh, in that kind of meeting. And, uh, but you're actually going to well, be that. You won't be the fly uh, on the wall. But I get to hear what other people are doing. And, and every time I'm in a context like that, I learn new things about what I could be doing, new ways of thinking about it, new ways of challenging what I do and saying, well, is that really the right thing uh, to be doing? So that's that's very exciting. Um, we'll also get to go to the um, Steli conference this year, happens to be in Sherbrooke, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of June. Um, I was there last year mm-hmm. um, for a different reason and uh, uh, learned a lot from the workshops there. Um, and as I understand it, these, these groups then continue on going forward. James Fraser from Physics uh, mm-hmm. at Queen's won it last year. Okay. So it's very exciting to follow in his footsteps. And, and, and uh, you were the ninth, yes, you were the ninth scholar at Queen's, I understand. I think that's what someone yeah. Yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we have a good track record as well. And actually, um, I went back and, and looked at, at, at uh, some of the previous winners. I would say, oh, you know, whose company am I in? And these are people like Mike, uh, Mark Weisberg who were part of the leadership at the CTL when I started. Oh, wow. And were, you know, mentors and, you know, people I could look up to. Um, so so, so it was interesting to see the names that, that, yeah, they were recognized as well for what they were doing, and they were giving back through these workshops and things they were doing. And while you aren't teaching to get all of these accolades yourself, you've come to a position where you are uh, in fellowship with people who you used to learn from right. yourself and now continue to collaborate yeah. with as a peer. That must be a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. What a great accomplishment. Well, and I think it also models what I want for my students as well. Both yeah. as a researcher and as a teacher, I want to bring them up to where not just they're at the same level as me, but you know, go higher. I want to learn from you. You know, Teach me. Well, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours, but we're close to running out of time. But I do want to ask one final question of you. Do you have any advice for your peers at Queen's, uh, perhaps junior faculty and even teaching fellows who are new to academia, Mm -hmm. new to teaching about their classrooms and their pedagogy? Get excited about teaching. (laughs) I I am all the time. But more than that, so it's, it's not... We are researchers and we are teachers, and I think they go together hand in hand. I don't think we can separate those, and, and, and I think that the, the old way of thinking about that is, is quickly disappearing, thankfully. So as, as, as new um, scholars and teachers at Queen's, I want to see people get involved, get involved in talking about teaching. Um, talk to, to colleagues, um, find out what they're doing, find out how they think about their teaching. Um, and this is probably easier for me to say than not, don't be afraid to take risks. You know, don't be afraid to experiment in the classroom. We have really bright students here at Queens, and, mm-hmm. and they're willing to play along when, when the learning is engaging, when it's interactive. They jump right in. You can learn a lot from them. And so um, as a new faculty member, you take advantage of that. It's a great opportunity. And take advantage of the many support services at Queens Force. Absolutely, yeah. At the Center for Teaching and Learning. Center for Teaching and Learning. Um, and then across the different faculties at Queens, we have um, pockets of people doing really interesting creative things. We have workshops for TAs. We have workshops for for, for, um, uh, for new faculty. I mean, these are great opportunities and resources. Times Everyone's time is limited, so I don't want to just, like, just pile it on. Uh, but investment in learning about your teaching or even just learning how to talk about and reflect on your teaching, investing in that is invaluable going mm-hmm. forward. It, it'll, it'll save you a lot of time and energy, but also enrich your own experience in the classroom and that of your students. 
Thank you very much for this advice, and thank you so much for coming and talking well, to us today. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. And uh, once again, congratulations from all of us here at CFRC. Thank Welcome. you very much. You've been listening to Campus Beat. Stay tuned for Blind Date with Knowledge, coming up next, right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. This podcast was produced at CFRC. CFRC and Queen's University are situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. You can find every episode of this and all of our podcasts at podcast.cfrc.ca. Thank you for listening to CFRC's Podcast Network.